All right, so you guys, let's sing together.
Today we have the privilege of one of those great church family events where we uh, get to dedicate two children, uh, but as you know, we treat it more as a parent dedication, uh, where they are committing themselves to know and understand their children, to know and understand the Lord, and to raise their children uh, according to the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. So I am going to read a passage from Deuteronomy that I think captures uh, discipling our children to, to uh, Jesus so well, even though it's from the Old Testament, but the methodology is there. And then I'm going to turn and ask uh, two questions of our families, and then I'm going to ask you guys to make Who came in that you were able to cast your... <laughs> so... 
Today we have Maddie Sue Carroll, and her parents are Kyle and Anna. And then we have Gannett Stockwell Lowry, and his parents are Evan and Heather Lowry. I want to start with Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 to 7. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Uh, a great picture of discipleship at all times. Okay, Kyle and Anna and Evan and Heather, have you guys trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Yes. And is it your commitment today to raise your children according to the nurture and admonition of the Lord? by God's word and by his grace. Great. And now church family, I'm going to ask you uh, if you will commit to support, to mentor, to encourage these families in their discipling of their children to Jesus and go so far as to get involved, uh, whether it's hallway conversations, prayer for the families, or teaching uh, the children uh, as uh, they grow up in our ministry. You can answer. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to ask you to pause right now. I'm just going to ask you to bow your head, and we're just going to take a couple of seconds. And I'm going to ask you just to pray and ask the Lord right now, how can you serve these families in the coming years? Just a couple of seconds. Thank you, Lord, that you uh, love us, and we thank you that you have given us this privilege of uh, having children by your grace and uh, by your grace, raising them according to your word. And we ask for the strength and stamina to do that as a church family, to really uh, make a serious commitment to these families, to encourage them in these child raising and specifically in the discipling of the children to Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to pray over each child. This is Maddie Sue. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for Maddie Sue. We thank you, Lord, for her young life and for the health that she enjoys. And we pray that uh, you would continue to allow her to grow as a young girl and a young woman uh, to come to know you at an early age. We ask that you would give her the grace to trust Jesus as, as her Savior at an early age. And we pray for Kyle and Anna, Lord. We thank you for the stamina you've given them in these seven and a half months. We thank you for the love that you've given them. And we pray for real insight and wisdom as they seek to understand uh, Maddie. And we pray that you would give them an understanding of your word and the ability to bring your word to bear on her life. We thank you, Lord, that we can entrust them to this lifelong, wonderful journey and adventure of discipling Maddie to Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And Gannett, let's pray for Gannett. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for Gannett. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you have made him into a wonderful little boy. And uh, you have, uh, you're the one who formed him in the womb. And we thank you, Lord, uh, that he is an answer to prayer. Uh, that for this child, uh, Evan and Heather have prayed, and, and uh, just like Hannah. And we thank you for the uh, generous and uh, gracious provision that you have given them with Gannett. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to allow him to grow 
uh, in stature, that you would allow him to grow socially and mentally and emotionally and most of all spiritually, that again, like Maddie, that he would come to know Jesus at an early age as his Savior and by his grace, by your grace, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray for Evan and Heather, Lord. We ask that you would continue to um, give them understanding of Gannett, uh, not only now, but at each age, uh, each developmental stage along the way. We pray that you would allow them the joy of seeing him come to know Jesus. Pray that you would strengthen their marriage and that you would give them a oneness in terms of uh, raising a gannet with one heart and one mind as they serve you. And we thank you for the grace that you've given to Gannett by putting him in their home. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you guys very much. I want to thank you for participating with us this morning. Just 
Father, we thank you for the life that you gave us. We thank you for your son, for the life that we can have in him. And I pray this morning that you would draw us close, that you would make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. If you're kindergarten to grade five, you can head off to Sunshine Kids Club. And if you're a guest, feel free to go and, and meet the staff. We are in a sermon series titled Waypoints, Waypoints for the Journey. And the idea is that uh, as we go through our and unveil our vision, mission, and core values for Conroe Bible Church, that these are tracking points. These are stations along the way to let us know if we are continuing in coming months and years uh, in the direction that God has given us. Last week, we looked at uh, vision and uh, the vision that God has given us to be a church family committed to seeing everyone transformed through the love of Christ. And today we want to look at mission. Would you join me in prayer as we uh, commit to learn from the Lord? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have excited us and enthused us with uh, allowing us to join you in your work. Thank you for giving us this vision to see everyone transformed through the love of Christ, through the gospel, and through the continuing grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for this mission, which uh, we ask would inspire us to unity in terms of uh, heading in a common direction and carrying out the activities that you would wish us to carry out. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. A church is thriving when it is engaging, equipping, and empowering. These are characteristics that reveal a church that is making disciples in obedience to the Great Commission, the words that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples before he returned to glory. I want to read from Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 to 47, as we look at uh, the picture, a snapshot of a highly functioning church. This is one of Luke's progress reports there in the book of Acts. And uh, he gives us a picture of a church that is highly functioning, a church that is thriving, a church that is living out obedience to make disciples. Verse 42. Acts 2. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We see all kinds of things there, worship and community and discipleship. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. There's worship and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
That is a picture of the early church in Jerusalem. And, and these were followers of Jesus who had come together under the teaching of the apostles in the power and control of the Holy Spirit. And they were thriving. I would say that they were engaging, they were equipping, and they were empowering. That gives us a snapshot of what a thriving early church looked like. And now we want to look at the practicality of getting there. How do we get to be a church that is thriving that way? What is the mission that God has given us? Well, as we said last week, the mission is always to make disciples. But through prayer and discussion, uh, through study of scripture and discussion with many of you and, and looking at the uniquenesses that God has given us in Conroe Bible Church, uh, we believe he's given us just a little bit of a unique take on making disciples. And that's what we want to present today. Here is our mission statement that we believe God has given to us. Our mission is to engage, equip, and empower. We engage people through the love of Christ. And we equip one another through relational disciple-making. And we empower the saints for the work of the ministry. We want to look at those three segments of this mission statement as we go through a passage today that I think actually gives us a blueprint for that from Paul's writing to 1 Thessalonians. If we were to hold to Peter Drucker's, uh, the great uh, management leadership guru, his definition of a mission, we would have to say it has, fits on a T-shirt. So we would go simply with engage, equip, empower. We're going to unpack that a little bit uh, here as we move forward. Because our, our desire as the early church is to be thriving. We want to make disciples, and we believe this is how God has called us to do that. So what practices got the early church there? What activities in the presence of Jesus and under the power of the Holy Spirit allowed them to be thriving and making disciples? Well, thankfully, the Lord answers that questions for us in, in the number of the letters of Paul, but specifically in first Thessalonians where he gives us, as I said, a blueprint for carrying out our mission of making disciples. He had been in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, which took place roughly between AD 49 and 52. And he had been there. If you remember, he had been in Philippi and was beat and thrown in stocks, and then a big earthquake comes, and he and Silas are released, and they lead the jailer to Christ. But the officials want them to leave, and so they do. They probably got on horseback, went up the Ignatian Way, the beautiful Aegean Sea, uh, on the left all the way up, and across from Philippi, probably a three-day journey, about 100 miles. And we told that they're stopped in Amphipolis and Apollonia, <laughs> And they arrived in Thessalonica. And that's the first time that Paul had set foot there. Then he was thrown out of there and thrown out of Berea by people who chased him from Thessalonica. And he's gone down to Athens and then finally to Corinth. He had left 
Timothy and Silas back in Macedonia, and Timothy had now returned with a report on Thessalonica. And it's at that point that Paul writes back to them. And he writes back and he gives them some encouragement. He reminds them of the ministry that took place, and that's what we'll look at. And he appraises them because God has been at work in them, transforming them. And as a result, that whole region of Macedonia, which had booted him out violently, was now known as an area where the gospel had spread. And that's very exciting. They were people who were making disciples and reproducing disciples. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul gives some of that praise as he compares them to the church, that early church that we read about in Jerusalem. And this is what he says. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now, he said specifically in verse 14, he goes on to talk about how they continued to serve while suffering. They mimicked Jesus. They imitated him in that way. But throughout the letter of 1 Thessalonians, he continually comments on the ways that they were thriving, just like the early church that we saw in Acts chapter 2. I believe Paul puts out this blueprint so that we can see the practices of the early church, so that we can see the activities that they carried out, that they practiced as they sought to fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples. We're going to look at that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. And the first thing we're going to see is that we are to engage, pursue people with loving affection. Engage, pursue people with loving affection. Paul reminded the church family at Thessalonica of his love for them. And he does that by reminding them of how he was when he was with them. If I had to choose a symbol for this section, I would choose a baby bottle. And you'll see why when we read verse 7. This is what Paul wrote about his love for the people. But we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you. Now you can see why we had baby dedication. I needed an object lesson. We had two beautiful women up here who are mothers who are gently and tenderly caring for their babies. What a beautiful picture that is of an approach to someone, a care for someone, and it really captures love, the concept of love when you think about it. Because one of the distinguishing characteristics of nursing mothers is to be gentle. Now that, to be honest, is not a characteristic that I typically think of with Paul. You know, determined, angry sometimes, impassioned, zealous, but not always gentle. Paul chooses that word to remind them of the love that he had for them and the way that that has in carrying out making disciples, the, the importance that that has. In these two verses, 
7 and the first part of 8, we find the context for making disciples. And that context is one of love. We are called to unconditionally love imperfect people, to commit ourselves to them, seeking God's best, typically at a cost to ourselves. Now, sometimes that cost is material, financial. Most often that cost is in terms of time and energy and loving others. Sometimes others are unlovely. Sometimes others require extra grace. God has called us to be committed with that type of love. And Paul says it's characterized by being gentle. We must choose to love others. We are imperfect, and we will often fail at that. That's our disclaimer, but it's not our excuse. And as we look at uh, a mother, the imagery of a mother, I think it helps us gain a better understanding of how we can pursue that. If we unpack the nature of a nursing mother's love, we realize that it is selfless, it is sacrificial, it is giving. Babies can do nothing for the mother. They can't carry on a conversation. They can't help with the chores. They can't support when she's down. Babies are not that helpful, and yet we are called to love them, and it's the natural response of a mother. That's giving us a picture of how we ought to look at people, whether it's people in our church family or people outside in our neighborhood or at the workplace or at school. Mom gives herself to the baby. We want to be loving like that. We also recognize that moms have a loving affection for their babies. That's how Paul started off verse 8, having so fond an affection for you. This phrase means to, to feel drawn to someone, to long for them. And that's what happens when we choose to love someone. They become dear to us. We feel drawn to them. Isn't that what happens with a, a mother? She naturally loves her baby. She feels drawn to him and pretty, much, pretty soon becomes aware of all that's going on with that baby. She's aware if there's a, a change in skin color and the consistency of a diaper, the taste of a kiss, the sound of a cry. Mothers are fully aware of that. And so when Paul says, engage with a loving affection, I think he's calling us to be that committed. The context is love, and he's calling us to understand one another's. Why else would he use a parental metaphor of a mother? if he wasn't serious about us understanding how to love each other. Have you ever been loved that way? We are to, called to make disciples in the context of love. And so the first statement in our mission statement is we engage people with the love of Jesus Christ. Our love is to reach out. Our love is to affirm people. Our love is to encourage people. Our love is to understand them and seek to meet their needs, seek to point them to Jesus so that he can meet their needs. Whether they share them or not, whether they're aware of them or not, we are called into that type of relationship to care for them. Our love touches people, whether they express a need for that love or not. Can you think of a time when you were touched that way? by someone that just engaged you 
with a loving affection. I'm going to give a, a kind of crazy illustration of that. I'm going to tell you a story from uh, the football field, of all things. How's that for being engaged with loving affection? Maybe you'll remember it. I had gone through spring practice at one school and then transferred to a different school at, uh, the, during the summer. And uh, I didn't know anybody there. I hadn't played with that team before. I didn't know the expectations. I didn't know the offense, the defense. I didn't know anything. I didn't know where they'd take me or whether they'd keep me or not. And, and so I was just going all out with everything I had to impress, to make an impression, to be able to last. And on the third day of practice there in, in uh, two a days in August, uh, we were running sprints at the end of practice. And, and I noticed on the third sprint, one of the assistant coaches had, had moved over to the spot where I was uh, expected to cross the line there at the 40, 40 yard line. And uh, so I ran the sprint, I finished, I came walking back to prepare for the next sprint. And he, he just leaned in and, and he looked at me, made eye contact and he said, you know, I like your intensity. You belong here. Those were words that I needed to hear at that moment. You belong here. Words that met needs I didn't know I fully had. I certainly had lots of questions and doubts and confusion and wasn't sure how I was going to land. But that's all I needed to be spurred on, to be motivated to continue going on. That's an illustration of how the Lord wants us to treat one another. That's a pattern that Paul has given us to be gentle, to be drawn to one another with a loving affection, to love on others. Whether we know it or not, there are often people that go home on a Sunday morning and have lunch and they wonder if anyone noticed them on a Sunday morning. They wonder if anyone cared on a Sunday morning. And you say, well, no, no, I'm, I'm always conversing and, and uh, loving and smiling. Uh, and maybe you always are, and that's awesome. But we want to be a people that are always reaching out to more. That's why I love our, our greeter ministry uh, under Alan's uh, leadership here. They are doing such an incredible job, especially for people that walk in confused and don't know what the expectations are and first-time guests. And, and, and Alan has them trained up to provide a smile if they're not wearing a mask and a loving word, a kind word, and a presence that says, we're glad you're here. Those are the kinds of things that we want to do as a church family. We want to be engaging with love. You know, babies make their needs known quickly. But with adults in our culture, it's a little more difficult. And that's why I say there are people around us every day, whether it's in the hallways here or borrowing a tool from a neighbor or any other conversation that we have, that people have real needs. In fact, if you're aware at all of all the relational needs that are going on because of the pandemic, because of the social uprest, because of the political climate, I mean, anxiety is just going through the roof for most people. And you can bet that most people that you engage in conversation are dealing with that at some level. 
And so you might think, what kinds of words can I do that are, bring that are encouraging, that, that bring peace? What kinds of scripture could I share with individuals? It's such a, a, a vibrant time for reaching out to people who are hurting because it's real. Simply know that everyone has needs which can be served well with love. There are people that need to know you are important to my world and I'm glad you're here. These words must come in the context of love, a commitment to seek one another's best, even at a cost to yourself. And so that cost sometimes is getting to know someone, sometimes stopping for conversation, sometimes seeking to understand their circumstances or the culture in which they live. I like the words of John Watson, an old Scottish preacher from the 19th century, but he had this written in his flyleaf. Simply said, be kind. You don't know the battles that people are fighting. Isn't that a great comment? It's the kind of comment that uh, can, can work its way into your heart and mind and, and help you and me as we seek to engage others with love. And certainly kindness and love is one of the marks of this body when you ask others. But it's something we want to be intentional about. And remember this, that when you start with love, it's very easy to move into the gospel. It's very easy to talk about the love of Christ when you've been exhibiting his love toward others. We want to spread God's love to brothers and sisters in Christ and to those in our sphere of influence. At Conroe Bible Church, we will be church followers who engage others, who engage people with the love of Christ. That's the first aspect of our mission. We're going to take time to understand those around us and choose to act in love toward them. The second aspect in verses 8 and 9 we see is to equip, to reproduce followers of Jesus relationally. Equip. Reproduce followers of Jesus relationally. Here we're talking about disciple-making, very intentional disciple-making. Paul reveals the strategy that they used in Thessalonica. His team, Paul and Silas, and likely Timothy was with him, instructed with God's word. They gave the gospel. They also nurtured people with their lives. They spent time with them. In Acts 17, we read of their arrival in Thessalonica, and we're told that he went and, and taught for three weeks, three Sabbaths in the synagogue. Paul always addressed the Jews first. I believe there's a gap between verses 3 and 4. I believe he was there for a few more weeks, possibly even a few more months. Because in verse 4, we read about the number of Greeks and the leading people of the city that had come to Christ that were now followers. And we read about a commitment of their lives to one another. I think that's wrapped up in time that they spent in the city of Thessalonica. If I was to choose a symbol for this section, it would be a map. It gives us a strategy, a relational disciple-making strategy. This is what he says in the end of verse 8 of chapter 2. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Once again, Paul reminds them of his love for them. The people had become very dear. That's how love works, right? Love is a choice that we make. And when we love people, 
we are willing to move into their lives. We are willing to give up our time and energy to make their time and energy strengthened, filled with grace. Seeking their best, Paul gave them the gospel, and he kept on loving them and discipling them relationally. And Paul continued revealing the labor that went into their ministry. In verse 9, he says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Here we read about time taken to be gentle, to know them well enough to be gentle with them, time taken to give not only the gospel, there's teaching and instruction there, but also time to commit their lives, to share their lives to them. And then on top of that, he says, we worked. He was a tent maker, literally a, a, a leather worker. And he worked so that they wouldn't be a burden to the people of Thessalonica. He did that so that he could strive to see them become more like Jesus. I think Colossians 1, 28 and 29 kind of give his philosophy of ministry that, that uh, we proclaim Jesus is what he says, teaching and admonishing every man so that we may see every man become complete in Christ. And then he says in verse 29, for this purpose I labor, striving, striving mightily in the power of the Holy Spirit that this might take place. Paul is given time and energy to relate to these people. In these verses, we find the commitment for the activities of our mission statement. The commitment is to be all in when we point others to Jesus. And that's what Paul continually did, whether he was in Colossae or in Thessalonica. We're called to equip disciples with such commitment. Our mission statement is clear. We equip one another through relational disciple making. What does relational disciple making look like? Well, it looks like taking others on the faith journey with us. Relational disciple making starts with a commitment on your part to walk with Jesus. And then with all that you come in contact with to point them to Jesus and to encourage them to strengthen them in their walk with Jesus. For the early decades of my life, there were a lot of curricula available for discipleship and much of it was very good. It involved lots of study and lots of memorization Many different books in, in terms of helping us understand basic biblical truth and biblical principles for living and equipping for ways to serve Jesus. Some of those programs were two, three years long. And we don't disciple that way anymore. We still offer that. We, in fact, I, I think our ABF teaching is phenomenal that way in terms of every adult Bible fellowship having God's word taught at such a deep level, including the students as well, to understand God's word, to know him, and to know how he works in our lives. That's going on, and we are extremely uh, thankful for that. But we are not setting up programs, and we don't feel called that way in this season of the church's life, 
to disciple others. Because in our current culture, most of the time when we have a program, so to speak, it tends to lose energy. It tends to lose the heart issues involved. And so I prefer the method of relational disciple making is what I would call it. And that is where we are intentional, certainly about specific relationships, might be within our own family, within our own marriage, might be within with friends that we gather with, or it just could be any casual relationship in the church family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And it could certainly be every casual conversation we have in the neighborhood or at the workplace or at the school. And our desire is to be walking with Jesus. We want to be walking with Jesus so that we are prepared to have something to help someone else walk with Jesus. So that we can point them to walking with Jesus. Relational disciple making looks like just walking with Jesus and bringing others on the journey with us. It was Paul who maintained this type of service everywhere he went. He says in the, his letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now, that's not an arrogant statement. That's not a, a statement designed to build his ego by gathering people that would look to him. He is saying, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, and I'm willing by God's grace to bring you along. You can imitate me. That's a pretty weighty statement, isn't it? It's an intimidating statement. Not many of us would want to make that statement to another person. Hey, Debbie, and imitate me. Yeah. Hey, John, Im imitate me. Hey, Bobby, imitate me. Now, we don't want to say that. But we can say it if we follow it with, just as I am imitating Jesus Christ. Obviously, there's a responsibility now for me to follow Jesus Christ. And in this calling that we have to make disciples, we are to share what he is giving us with those around us. And we are to be willing to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because we're all called to follow Jesus. And we're not called to follow him alone. We equip one another through relational disciple-making. We want to be a people that say, if you follow me, you will be following Jesus. Again, we don't know where everyone is at. And we don't know what kind of strength they need, what kind of modeling they need, or if they're willing to turn that around and say, hey, you follow me, or let's do this together. And then Paul provides a pattern for walking with Jesus through the gospel. In verse 8, he says, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. So they gave the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You trust Jesus Christ and your sins are forgiven and you receive the free gift of eternal life. He chooses to enter your life through the Holy Spirit and lead you. We come to Jesus for eternal life with a humility which recognizes that we are helpless to save ourselves. And the pattern of the gospel for justification, for coming to Christ by grace through faith, is also the pattern for walking with Jesus. 
by grace through faith. We have to recognize that we are helpless to transform ourselves, to become more like Jesus. It does require our cooperation. It requires our loving obedience in response to God and his word. But it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that he changes us from the inside out and makes us more like Jesus. We've got to have that intentionality. We must show others how the Spirit works through our own lives. The Thessalonians observed, listened, and mimicked Paul in his walk with Jesus. How do we know that? Listen as I read verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. I got to believe he, he had told them the same thing he told the church at Corinth. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. These people imitated Paul, and now they were people worth being imitated. That's a way to think of relational disciple-making, that we are to be a people that walk with Jesus. That gives us the personal responsibility to do what Jesus has called us to do, to do what he calls us to do in terms of experiencing abundant life, a life that he has come to give us, his life lived out loud by faith. When we do that, then we have things to offer to others. And pretty soon they begin to imitate. And they become those who are imitated. And they become those who are imitated. And we could go back to the old illustrations of multiplication instead of addition when it comes to disciple making. That's what happened with Paul. This is, this is probably only a, a one-year period at most. It might only be six to nine months since he's been there. And this word is already spreading. That's phenomenal, isn't it? That's what the Holy Spirit can do through a church that is engaged with one another through relational disciple-making. Relational disciple-making requires a commitment to share our lives in walking with Jesus. And these conversations can take place at any time. Certainly, talking about the weather, our health issues, finances, these are all natural, normal, and even necessary. But we don't want to dwell there as followers of Jesus Christ. We want to get to heart issues. We want to find out how people are handling that emotionally. We want to see what effect that is having spiritually on them. We want to help them ask and answer the question, what is God doing through this circumstance? How can I help you? How can I pray for you? Here's what God's word says about what you're going through. Cling to God's word. Can I help you be strong in trusting Jesus at this point in your life? Those are the kind of conversations that we want to have that move beyond just facts and ideas to deeper levels that allow God's word and the Holy Spirit to come to bear, going to heart issues. When you and I are walking with Jesus, then his life needs to be woven into the fabric of our lives. 
and we become more aware of what God is doing. We could become more sensitive to asking the question, God, what are you doing and how can I follow you through this? God, here is what I need at this point. Max Lucado tells the story of a mariner's map created in 1525. Beautiful map, of course, back then. The cartographers used inks and colors. And it was a map uh, outlining the coast of North America. It, uh, it's housed in the British Museum in London. This map had the coast of North America. And then typical of that day were there areas or regions of the sea or of the land or the end of the world that they didn't know about then they would just put in inscriptions like, here be dragons, here be fiery scorpions, here be death. Well, Sir John Franklin happened to get a hold of this particular map. He was an explorer, even went to the Arctic and all kinds of other places. He took this map and, and was going to use it, and he saw these writings, and he just crossed each one out, and he said, here be God. Here be God. He was a follower of Jesus, and he knew that he would never be away from the presence of Jesus Christ. And that's why I would say my symbol for this context of commitment in this section, equipping one another with relational disciple-making, would be a map that we can be people when we are hearing from someone else, from a brother or sister in Christ, that can sit there and say, here be God. Here be God. He is with you. I am willing to walk with you through this. I will pray for you. Let's pray right now. Here be God. We want to be people that are engaged with one another on a very intentional level that way through relational disciple making. When we disciple one another relationally, we provide a map for each other. When we call people to imitate us as we imitate Christ, we're providing a map for them to follow. We must be proactive in the realm of relational disciple-making. The love with which we engage one another in the church family leads us to equip them through relational disciple-making. And like Paul, we not only give the gospel, but we give our lives. And next we see the activity of empowering as we prepare others to honor God through their lives. In verses 10 through 12, we see this, empower Prepare God's people to honor him. Paul wraps up this reminder of their ministry with a goal. Verses 10 through 12 in the original language are just one long, awkward sentence. And in the process, he kind of takes us back and reminds us of the commitment of their lives and what that means and the personal responsibility that goes in to telling someone to imitate them. He also moves forward with a goal, and he puts it in a father's voice, which brings a strong, natural power to it. Christ-likeness comes individually and collectively when a body functions by God's design. And functioning as God's body, as the body of Christ, requires empowering the saints for ministry. That's what we are called to do. 
And if I had a symbol for this section, it would be scales, balance scales, the old merchant scales from the ancients that used to use. But I want to start with 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 10, as we see a reminder of their commitment. You are witnesses, says Paul, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. He's speaking of their integrity. And again, he's using words that we might find intimidating. In fact, I cannot remember the last time somebody came up to me in the office here and said, you know, Dave, I have behaved uprightly, devoutly towards you. It's not language we use. In fact, it's language that some of us would be scared to use. But let's look at it. What does it mean to be devout? It, means, it just means to be devoted to Jesus, to, to, to choose him instead of every other voice that's coming at us in our culture, especially those that are against Christ. What does it mean to be upright? Well, it means to seek to make right choices, to respond in loving obedience to Christ. And what does it mean to be blameless? Especially when we're saying to people, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, blameless does not mean perfection. Blameless just simply means keeping short accounts. It means when, I'm, when I sin, when I'm rebellious, I'm willing to confess that sin and to be forgiven, to keep short accounts with Christ so that I can keep with this heart's desire to follow Jesus and to do it strongly. Paul and Silas were simply imperfect people crawling toward the light. And he lets us know that it's okay to be the same way. We want to be those people who are focused on Christ and who are willing to say, these are the choices I want to make. And by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, I will. That's what happens for God's people to honor him. In verse 11, we read this, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own child, his own children. Paul picks up that parental metaphor again. He started with the mother and her gentle, loving affection, and now he comes in with the father who is exhorting and encouraging and imploring. Fatherlessness is one of the greatest societal issues that we have across all ethnicities. We see it everywhere, all throughout our country. And we read time and again of the power of a father's ver voice. He's using strong words here, exhort, encourage, implore. But we also know by experience and by research, the power that a father's voice has that can either, either further a child's growth and impact lifelong or it can hinder it lifelong because the tapes of the father play in our heads for years, for the rest of our life. Paul is saying, let's have that kind of power as we serve one another. Let's empower others Let's prepare them to serve the Lord. And so one of the first things that we can do is say, we choose to come alongside you and encourage you in life. How can we do that? Well, obviously we can help people understand their identity in Christ. That that's where they are secure and significant and strong. 
Those are empowering words. And when we can disciple someone that way so that they understand that, they're set for life. We can help them understand their adoption by the Father and realize how comforting that is and how it can never be lost and give them strength for serving the rest of their life. That's the image that Paul is giving us here as we serve one another, as we empower one another to serve because we want to empower one another to honor God. And that's what he's going to say here in, the, the, in verse 12. And how do we honor God? Well, we do that by serving him. That's what Christ told us in Mark 10, 45. I come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He wants us to imitate him. And we're going to see that in verse 12 as we further empower people to get into ministry by reaching this goal of walking worthy. Paul writes, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Here's the goal, to walk worthy of the God who calls you. And that word worthy is the picture of scales, the old merchant scales, if you would, balance scales. So there's a plate over here and there's a plate over here and there's a beam with chains coming down and you would put something here and then you would put these measuring stones to see how much it weighed and then you would be able to charge for the crop or the gold or whatever it was based on how it balanced out with these stones. Whatever number of stones there were, that's how much you charged according to their worth. And so when he says walk worthy, he says, you know, here's Jesus on this plate and here you are on this plate. And he says, it's, it's real easy to see that Jesus is like this and you're up here, but I want you to walk worthy. I want your character and conduct to line up with Jesus Christ. He's saying, I want you to become more like Jesus Christ individually, certainly to be transformed, but also collectively as a church family as the body of Christ. Paul makes that very clear in Ephesians 4 when he talks about the gifted people and the gifts that he has given to the church family. And he takes a little winding path as he discusses how that takes place and the training and the preparation that goes into it. And he says the ultimate goal in verse 16 is to become Christ-like, to move toward Christ's likeness, that he is the measure that we are to balance out with. And so every time he says walk worthy, that's what he's pointing us toward. And so what does that mean when we talk about empowering one another? It means preparing one another to honor God. How do we honor God through Christ's likeness? How do we honor God through Christ's likeness in the body of Christ? We do it through serving, through functioning as the body of Christ, through this continual flow of ministry, that there is no one on the sidelines. And, and so it requires education and training and mentoring. It requires gifting and placement of gifting into ministries. And sometimes it requires just getting into ministry and going. And sometimes it requires passing the baton off to new people. And sometimes it requires creating new ministries. We want to be a church that empowers others to serve him by preparing them to honor him, to be a people that are willing to walk worthy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to honor him in service. We are called to make disciples. 
with such a challenge. And our mission statement says that we empower the saints for the work of the ministry. The goal, again, is not simply just to get people into ministry. It's not just to get people to be busybodies. The goal is to train them up and empower them for ministry so that we corporately begin to look more like Jesus Christ, individually and together. Functioning as Christ designed us, individually and as a body. That's why we want to empower the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, mission is a broad biblical statement of how a church family is supposed to function. And we believe that through prayer, through study of scripture, through discussion with many people, through feedback, that God has given us this mission statement, that our mission is to engage, equip, and empower. That we engage people with the love of Christ, that we equip one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, through the love of Christ, and that we empower the saints for the work of ministry. That's what God is calling us to do here. And I am asking you to participate with us. I am asking you to grow with us. A mission statement like this sets boundaries, but it also inspires us uh, to get to work. Will you participate? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this call to make disciples. We thank you, Lord, for a blueprint here in the letter to Thessalonica. But most of all, we thank you for your work in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give us the grace, the strength, the stamina, the love, the commitment, and the willingness to challenge one another to live out this mission that you've given us. We give you thanks for the adventure, the journey that you've called us to. And we entrust ourselves to you with it. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.
for being with us this week. You guys be safe and don't do dangerous things.